Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Dumas family. Uh, you've probably heard this name before, especially if you're a fan of classic French literature, which I know so many of my uh, so many of my listeners are. The most famous Dumas is probably Alexandre, who was the the writer who gave us the Three Musketeers, which you've probably all heard of, and the Count of Monte Cristo, another very famous book. But you might be surprised to learn that his father was the son of a slave who ended up leading troops alongside Napoleon during the French Revolutionary Wars, and that his son was a famous playwright, and that his grandson was an Olympic double gold medalist. This family did not muck about. Talk about talk about a bloody bunch of overachievers. Very interesting to see four notable men emerge from four consecutive generations here. And they've all got pretty interesting stories too. So today, we're going to get across all four of them, kicking things off with uh, Thomas Alexandre Dumas, uh, a French general who was an important figure in the French Revolutionary War. Uh, and the whole reason we're chatting about this today is because alert listener and uh, probationary executive producer of this very podcast, Graham Keenan, got in touch uh, to suggest that I had a look at Thomas Alexandre uh, as a potential topic, and uh, I thought, hang on, I've heard this name before. That led me to find out about all these uh, other blokes as well, so I thought, why don't we just do, bloody, just do them all? Uh, so thanks, Graham. Nice one. Good on you for sending in such a great suggestion. Anyway, we've got a lot to get, a lot to get, a lot to get across today, so let's get to it and uh, talk about these four blokes, general, author, playwright, and Olympian, and uh, find out what they're all about. We're going all the way back to 1762 here, and uh, I, I guess we're actually getting across five generations of the family, technically, because we're going to talk about Thomas Alexander's uh, parents. His old man was a bloke named Marquis Alexandre Antoine Davy de la Palatieri. I should have practiced this one. Palatieri? Palatieri. Uh, a nobleman who lived in Haiti, or uh, Saint uh, Domingues, as it was known as the French colony. Uh, he owned a plantation, and I'm also very sorry to say that he owned the slaves to go with it, one of whom was named Marie Sassette Dumas. Now, Marie Sassette Dumas was Antoine's concubine, more or less, and uh, together they had three children, one of whom ended up uh, growing up to be our mate Thomas Alexandre. Born on the 25th of March, 1762, he, he lived in Haiti until, until 1776 when he was 14. As a, you know, as a, he was a slave. He, a, you know, he's still a young boy, a young man, but he's still a slave. Um, and in 1775, the year before he left, his dad, Antoine, actually went back to France to claim the family titles. He was the only Davy de la Payeterre left standing. Uh, his brothers and parents were all dead. Now, Antoine at this point was impoverished. He had no money, and so he sold his wife and his other kids, which is pretty bloody disgraceful, pretty disgraceful thing to do, I have to say. And uh, we don't know for sure what happened to poor old Mary Sassette, but I'll tell you what, she had the last laugh because her name, as we all know now, her name is the one we remember today when we're thinking about the, the Three Musketeers and all the rest of it. So um, the title actually that she's sometimes given is The Great Matriarch to a Saga of Distinguished Men, which I, I quite like that, very appropriate. Anyway. Antoine, before leaving for uh, for France in 1775, he also actually sold young Thomas Alexandre here, uh, this time to a mate of his, Captain Langlois, uh, so as to pay for the trip home. Uh, and then a year later, in 1776, uh, once Antoine had gone and collected all this money, uh, Langlois brought Thomas Alexandre back to France, where he was reunited with his old man. Antoine bought him back off Langlois, as you do, apparently. Uh, now that he had access to all his family's money, he was cashed up, he was able to rebuy his son. This is, this is horrible to talk about, to be honest. Um, and freed him. And again, this sounds like super heartless. It sounds really, really heartless, and it definitely is. But it was actually more or less the only way that Antoine was going to be able to 
get Thomas Alexander back to France with him because, again, he didn't have any money. It's pretty bloody terrible that he abandoned the rest of his family to a lifetime of slavery. But it ended up being a very different story for Thomas Alexander because in 1777, Antoine, after having collected all the money, collecting the family estate, whatever else they like that, he sold it. He sold everything. He sold all the, the, the land, the, the, the manor, everything else that they had there like that. And he moved to Paris where Thomas Alexander lived in the lap of luxury, uh, just basically living off his, off his dad's money there. His dad was cashed up like you wouldn't believe. Now, he's showering his son with money, giving him an education and a tr- you know, training typical for a young nobleman, very healthy allowance as well there. Um, so a young Thomas Alexandre is studying with all the other rich noble kids, including taking swordsmanship lessons from another famous mixed-race 18th-century Frenchman, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, right? Now, this bloke was not only a master swordsman, he was also a very famous composer. He's the first ever classic composer with African ancestry. Absolutely fascinating bloke and probably worth an episode in his own right here. He comes back into this story a little bit later on, so we'll leave him here for now. But the the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, I, I highly recommend you ever read about him. Or, you know, we, We'll probably cover him in, a, in an episode in the future because very, very interesting bloke indeed. Anyway. So, after a lavish and uh, luxurious adolescence, Thomas Alexandre, he moves into his own place uh, in his early 20s, cutting about Paris with all the other rich kids, generally having a good time. Uh, this is before the revolution, of course, so being a nobleman wasn't a, you know, an occupational hazard at this stage just yet. He did get a bit of grief uh, for his race, unfortunately. I'm sorry to say that he, he did cop a bit of uh, a cop a bit of flack for being uh, you know half white and half black here, which is you know very unfortunate. And it also affected his military career to begin with, as we'll talk about here. Uh, he joined the army right after his dad got married. Antoine married one of his servants, so we see a bit of a pattern emerging here. Uh, and this actually caused, as you might expect, a bit of a rift between father and son. Obviously, you know that went a little bit too close to the bone there for young Thomas Alexandre there. Um, and as a result, he joined the French army. This is a pretty normal thing to do uh, for, for, you know, for members of the French nobility at the time, although normally they would automatically become officers, but not so with our mate Thomas Alexandre, unfortunately, due to his race. Despite having the pedigree, if that's a thing that humans can have, he wasn't allowed a commission. You had to demonstrate that you had four generations of noble birth, noble blood, you know, I don't know how to. I don't know how to say it, but that, you know, but you had to d- demonstrate that your your great 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 grandfather was uh, was a knob just like you, uh, which obviously he could do on his dad's side, but still it wasn't enough to overcome the racial prejudice, the racial barriers at the time, and so he was refused a commission. Instead, he joined as a common soldier, which put his dad f- even further offside with him. And Antoine also, in- who you know, is if you haven't kind of already realised. Does seem to be a bit of a bit of a, a rubbish bloke, to be honest. And here he says to his son, "Listen, you're not to use uh, the noble name, the you know the unpronounceable one. I'm not going to say it again because you know what it is, and I know what it is, so we don't need to say it again. We both know what it is. Don't use it while you're an, uh, a soldier, so you know you're not dragging it through the muck. You're not you know tarnishing it there like that. Pretty ordinary behaviour from Antoine there. But as a result, Thomas Alexandre he signs up as a soldier with his mother's name instead, and now is known as Alexandre Dumas from this point onwards. Absolutely brilliant, right?" So not even two weeks after he'd cast off his father's name and joined the army, his dad actually died. And so young young Alexandre now is well and truly his old man, own man here. He's ready to forge his, his own destiny, un, unfettered, unshackled by his father. And that is exactly what he does. Although to begin with, his military career is off to a slow start. Of course, we all know where he ends up, but to begin with, it it, it did got a you know it was it was pretty pretty leisurely, pretty leisurely pace to begin with. He's off in small rural towns mainly, just these postings here and there out in the countryside. But then, at the outbreak of the French Revolution in 1789, he's sent to a small village called Villers Cotterets. And I know that's not how it's said in French. It's got a little e with a hat on it, and it's got I don't know how to pronounce it, but Villers Cotterets. That's the best I can do. I'm so sorry to all the francophone listeners. 
there in Villa's Cotteret, he and his regiment, they keep the peace as best they can. Thomas Alexander himself is quartered at the inn where he, uh, he becomes engaged to and later marries the innkeeper's daughter, Mary Louise. Um, and in the revolution, as, as the revolution continued, Thomas Alexander was sent to Paris, where in 1791, he and his regiment were, were basically riot police, effectively, because they were present at, uh, at all sorts of, you know, uprisings and riots and all, all, all sorts of stuff that was going on, of course, uh, you know, at, at around the time of the French Revolution. Uh, and they were present at the infamous Champ de Mars. Champ de Mars? I don't know. Why don't letters say anything in French? Why did, like, you, you, you just... Don't say half the letters in the word. Champ de Mars massacre. Champ de Mars? I don't know how to say it. Whatever. Anyway, he later claimed, right, at this massacre to have saved the lives of 2,000 people by intervening with his regiment and making sure that it was, you know, it wasn't obviously completely bloodless. I think it was about 50 people died or so, but it could have been a lot more if these, uh, you know, if this, if uh, Thomas Alexander and his regiment there. We're going to call him Thomas Alexander from now on, by the way, just to differentiate him from all the other, uh, other Alexanders we're going to speak about throughout the rest of the episode. So... Apart from civilian keep, uh, peacekeeping here, the first actual battle that he was involved with was in 1792 when he was part of an attack on the Austrian Netherlands. He excelled himself there, taking 12 prisoners while he was off sc- scouting. And the, later that year, he was finally offered a commission as a lieutenant colonel, although it was part of a regiment known as the Black Legion. Now, obviously, this is an extremely cool name. If I found out that I'd be fighting against the Black Legion, I would expect, you know, blokes on skeleton horses with scythes and all the rest of it. But of course, unfortunately, the name wasn't so much cool as it was just super racist. The Black Legion was comprised of, as you might have guessed, just people of colour, including old mate Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who was its commander. So Thomas Alexandre in this Black Legion, he's having a great time. He's happy to be back with his old sword, swordmaster. And the two of them are, you know, the, the commanding officers, I guess. Uh, Chevalier de Saint-Georges is in charge, but he's off doing other sorts of stuff uh, here and there. And so often command is actually given to Thomas Alexandre, who's in charge of the Black Legion here and there. And uh, this lasts until uh, 1793, when the Black Legion is disbanded, and uh, Thomas uh, Thomas Alexander here, he gets promoted to Brigadier General and then General of Division in the Army of the North, and then later that year was promoted again to Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the Western Pyrenees. So, very good year for him there, 1793, and I wasn't able to find out exactly what he did to earn all these promotions, but he obviously impressed the right people. So this is obviously during a great time of chaos and turmoil um, uh, in France at this stage, so he obviously was riding that way very effectively. He's doing something right, pretty astronomical rise, uh, again, from someone whose dad didn't want him using his name, so I guess he showed him at the end of it. But I'll tell you what, this bloke was kicking goals with both feet because once he was in charge, before the end of 1793, he was also in charge of the uh, the Army of the Alps. He was in command of 53,000 men. He's just 31 years old. And again, this astronomical rise to the top here. And it was while he's in charge of this army that he pulled off a stunning victory against Austria as they fought in the mountains there in the Alps. And in 1794, he equipped his army with crampons, those spike things that you use to climb ice, and scaled a mountain, scaled icy cliffs and whatever else, right, to capture over a thousand Austrian troops and secure control of the little St. Bernard Pass. By all accounts, this bloke was a very, very clever, very gifted leader, as well as having a real conscience. Whenever he was in charge, he enforced rigid discipline amongst his soldiers and he stopped them from looting or otherwise taking advantage of local peasants. And that was in addition to huge successes like capturing the, the little St. Bernard Pass and, you know, all the other, the, the rest of the stuff that he did generally, just a, a rock solid leader, very good bloke. However, he, like so many other uh, people of his sort of social strata, so many other famous nobles of the time, 
was called in. He was called in front of the dreaded Committee of Public Safety in, in 1794, uh, headed by Robespierre. You may have heard of Maximilian Robespierre and his, pre- his predilection for chopping people's heads off after they'd been in front of the committee there. And uh, Thomas Alexander might have gone the same way had he not been uh, fortunate enough to to avoid ever actually having to, to go in front of the committee. By the time he was supposed to go and, and, and see them, the reign of terror was actually coming to an end. And it was Robespierre himself who had his head lopped off before he could do it to our mate uh, Thomas Alexander there. So a bit of a close shave. Well, actually, no, not a close shave. That's That was the, the good thing. He, he didn't get a very close shave there uh, from the old guillotine there, old uh, Thomas Alexander. So after avoiding this fate, He's off doing what he does best once again Once again in 1795. He's leading armies and he's fighting battles. He's off uh, this time with the Army of the Rhine. And then in 1796, after having fought with the Army of the Rhine, he becomes a senior officer in the Army of Italy, who are fighting in Tyrol. He's serving under the Army's Commander-in-Chief, whose name might be familiar to you. It was none other than Napoleon Bonaparte. These blokes, unfortunately, however, did not get along. Napoleon was a little more lax about how his soldiers behaved at the time, at the, you know, it seems. And, and Thomas Alexandre didn't like how Napoleon would let them go about nicking stuff off the locals and expropriating property and whatever else they're like that. But in any case, he's still doing a bang-up job as a, as a general. He's holding besieged cities. He's fighting off reinforcements. He's capturing spies, doing all sorts of stuff there. But unfortunately... Despite all of his good work, his rivalry with Napoleon, it doesn't serve his career well, and his career begins a bit of a backslide as he starts getting uh, command postings well under his rank after, uh, you know, butting heads with Napoleon, of course, who was only on the up and up. We all know how that story goes. Nonetheless, he still excels himself, and in 1797, he's still savagely fighting the Austrians. He's beat them so many times that they've started to call him Der Schwarze Teufel, or the Black Devil in English, which again, sounds very cool, but, you know, isn't really. But ultimately, his successes can't be ignored, even by Napoleon, who again is trying to keep him down a little bit. And when he single-handedly holds a bridge against an entire Austrian squadron, Napoleon promoted him and sent him a pair of pistols by way of congratulations and thanks. And, and this results in him becoming a military governor. And, uh, he, and stay, he stays in Tyrol until March 1798, when he was finally recalled to France for a new secret assignment. So despite having to sort of battle through this, you know, a little bit of a rivalry with Napoleon there, his results speak for himself and he's doing very well for himself, brought back to France for this secret assignment, as I say. He duly goes back to carry it out. To carry it out. And along with thousands of other French troops, he boards a fleet of ships. And in May 1798, they all set off for an unknown destination, again led by Napoleon. No one knew where they were. Well, actually, sorry. I say no one knew where they were going. Obviously, someone knew where they were going. They're not just floating about going where the wind takes them. But you know what I mean. He was, it was big top secret to business here. And it turns out that they were going to Malta. They quickly conquer the small island there before the end of June. And it's then that Napoleon announces their final destination. They are sailing to Egypt to take the fight to the British that are currently stationed there. I had no idea that the French fought in so many different places during the revolution, as well as fighting Austria and Britain. They also fought, uh, they also invaded Switzerland and they even sent troops to Ireland to help a rebellion against the British there. Anyway, En route to Egypt, Napoleon also tells Thomas Alexandre that he's been appointed the cavalry commander of the entire Army of the Orient, as it's known. And this means that on the 3rd of July, 1798, after landing there in Egypt, Thomas Alexandre leads the charge to the walls of Alexandria, which the French then go on to capture. Now, despite this, uh, this early success, the French campaign in Egypt was not a happy one. The conditions were, were, were horrific. They were severe, incredibly severe. It was super, super hot, and the French soldiers, they couldn't handle it. In fact, they were so unhappy that even before they reached and captured Cairo after the Battle of the Pyramids, which actually, I should mention, 
is a very optimistically named battle. It's it's called the Battle of the Pyramids because the pyramids were faintly visible on the horizon during the battle. They weren't like scaling the jumping off them with their swords and you know chat you know doing like parts of the Caribbean type duels on on top of the Sphinx or anything else like that, which is very disappointing. They were just off in the distance. Anyway, the Battle of the Pyramids results in the capture of Cairo for the French. But even before that, Thomas Alexandre, while they're marching towards there, Thomas Alexandre and some other generals, they begin to talk mutiny. They begin to talk actually disobeying the orders of Napoleon and going against uh, the plans here to uh, to you know conquer this uh, this region that, that was uh, so heavily influenced by the British. They start to talk about refusing to march any further past Cairo. That's their plan due to the conditions that their soldiers are having to put up with. Too hot, too miserable. They're dying of bloody fatigue and thirst and hunger and whatever else. Now, Napoleon hears about this talk. He hears about this mutinous talk. And after capturing Cairo, he went after Thomas Alexandre personally and threatened to shoot him for sedition, essentially. But realising very smartly that the writing was on the wall here and this was not going to be a good place for him to continue his career. Thomas Alexandre, he talked Napoleon down and then asked permission to return to France. Now, this was his sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. Napoleon didn't want him any, uh, there anymore. He didn't want him under his feet. Thomas Alexandre didn't want to get shot in the head by Napoleon. And so as a result, Napoleon says, yep, you know, bugger off, get, get out of here, go back to France, I don't care. Glad to get the bloke out of his hair. But before Thomas Alexander could leave, even after getting this permission from his commanding officer, the British destroyed the French fleet that was under the the the, the, the British. They rocked up uh, with Horatio Nelson at the bloody helm, and all of the um, all of the French the French ships that were you know in and around the Nile destroyed. And all of a sudden, this French this this French armada is just is is you know lying in is bloody being nibbled on by the crocodiles at the bottom of the Nile River. This means that it wasn't until 1799 that Thomas Alexandre could uh, could finally leave Egypt, which he did on the 7th of March in that year, 1799. He, along with another French general and some wounded soldiers and a bunch of others, set sail toward France. Now, the war had been kind to uh, Thomas Alexandre from a financial perspective. It had a fair bit of cash on him as well. And after selling all of the stuff that he'd uh, accumulated, you know, all the booty and the riches and, and the furnishings he had in his uh, lodgings and all the rest of it like that, he had a fair bit of money. And so he brought back with him almost 2,000 kilograms of coffee, as well as 11 Arabian horses, because he was going to go back to France, amass a fortune there, start breeding the horses and having a great time rolling in the cash. Unfortunately for him, however, the ship that he hired proved to be a little little unseaworthy, a little bit of a leaky boat it was, and it started to take on water as they sailed across the Mediterranean. This is a a disaster here because Thomas Alexander was forced to chuck away all of his cargo. Oh, it was forced to chuck... I I don't know if he... Chuck the horses overboard, but definitely all the coffee went overboard anyway, uh, just to keep the ship ship afloat there. But even this wasn't enough. They had to bring the ship into into a, a port for repairs, and so they sailed it into southern Italy to a town called Toronto, uh, right at the uh, the top of the inside of the stiletto bit there at the bottom of uh, the southern southern end of Italy. Unfortunately, they weren't greeted particularly warmly there. Uh, a local uprising had just taken place, and the city was under the control of a group who called themselves the Holy Faith Army. And as you would expect of a group called the Holy Faith Army, they weren't a very nice people. Uh, They chucked our mate Thomas Alexander in prison, and they treated him absolutely horribly. He languished in a dungeon for two years until he was discovered by a French army that was fighting in the region who defeated the Holy Faith Army, 
not so holy after all, it seems, and uh, and freed Thomas Alexandre and the other captives. It was 1801 by the time he regained his freedom, and by this point, after his imprisonment, he was almost blind in one of his eyes. He was partially paralysed, and he was a shadow of his former self. You know, he's a you know, big bloke soldier, he's nice and fit and all the rest of it, but now he's just bloody skin and bones after getting out of this dungeon. It was, you know, he'd been poorly fed, he'd been perhaps even poisoned. He'd had a bloody terrible time, I tell you what. And uh, at this stage, he's, look, he was just happy to be able to go back to France and specifically to uh, to his, his, his the old hometown, well, not hometown, but the, the town he used to live in there where he'd met his, uh, he's met his wife, uh, Villas Cotterets, uh, where I would like to say that he lived happily ever after. But that, unfortunately, is not what happened because by now Napoleon was well and truly in charge of France as the consul, more or less a dictator, and he saw to it that Thomas Alexandre didn't receive his pension. So great was the enmity between these two men that now Thomas Alexandre, his wife Marie-Louise, and the two children, Marie-Alexandrine and Alexandre, they lived as aristocratic paupers on a 30-acre farm. They barely had any money. They had, had, they had hardly any money, of course, because you know he's, he's sick and injured and wounded and he's unable to work properly and he doesn't have any savings after all, after losing you know the, the horses and the, and the coffee and all the rest of the riches he was supposed to bring home. And now he's not getting his sizable general's pension because Napoleon is personally preventing him from getting it, and as well, let, let alone any back pay for when he was imprisoned. And it only gets worse here because Thomas Alexandre, he dies... On the 26th of February, 1806, just a few years after having uh, having come home, he's only 43 years old. He dies of stomach cancer at 43. So it's a terrible, terrible blow for the Dumas family here. His young son, Alexandre, was just three years old when his dad died, and he was still consigned to poverty thanks to Napoleon's refusal to grant his old old colleague's family uh, a military pension here. And so now... It's time to turn our attention to this young boy, young Alexandre Dumas, uh, the second of today's four distinguished men. Alexandre is probably the most famous of all the Dumas boys that we're going to talk about today. You might have read some of the books that he wrote. If not, you've, you've certainly heard of them. As I've said, he wrote The Three Musketeers, which we've all heard of, The Count of Monte Cristo, very famous revenge story, plenty of others as well. But just like his dad... Just like his dad, he started life without very much money kicking about. His poor old mum is having to work in the tobacco shop down the road just to keep her two, fed, her two kids fed after the death of Thomas Alexandre. And the, their poverty meant that Alexandre, Alexandre only got a very basic schooling. He dropped out before he'd finished his secondary education there, and, and he, he did not have a very easy childhood growing up. But he found work all the same as a young man. He found work as a notary. He had particularly nice handwriting, apparently. And he became very interested in literature as a, as a teenager and he, as a young man. In 1822, he was living in Paris. He was working for a bloke named Louis Philippe, uh, who was the Duke of Orleans, or the Duke of Orléans, I suppose. I know that one because of uh, Age of Empires too, Orléans. Um, and it was during this time that he started writing his own literature, as well as working as a scribe for this bloke, uh, Louis Philippe. He also started writing his own books, his own novels, his own plays. He wrote plays and he wrote articles and stories. And, um, you know, despite their careers having gone in completely opposite directions, uh, he showed another interesting similarity with his old man. Because at this stage, right, so I should mention, he wasn't born Alexandre Dumas. That wasn't his birth name. His name at birth was Dumas Davy de la Payeterie, right? So he had the, the old noble name of his, uh, of his grandfather. And I'll tell you this, this noble name, it did open some doors for him. It probably helped him getting work with the Duke. But as a writer and as a grown man, he also 
cast off this name just as he dad as his dad had done and instead went by Alexandre Dumas just by this name it was very clear that his father was a huge even though he didn't really know him he died when he was three um he had a huge influence huge influence on Alexandre Dumas the exploits the stories of this decorated war hero this general brave general this respected military leader and obviously that sort of plays into a lot of the stories of high adventure that he would go to write throughout his career so very heavily influenced and probably did you know did something to uh, to get him to change his name there and once again once again old uh, old Marie Sasset Dumas gets the last laugh over Marquis uh, Antoine there as her name ends up attached to one of the world's literary greats and not the uh, you know not the Davy de la Payeterie there anyway as I say, Alexandre, he's in Paris. He's writing this and that. He's having articles published in magazines. And also, in addition to that, it seems he was sowing his wild oats at a great rate of knots. By all accounts, this bloke, he bloody loved jumping into bed with women everywhere. He's knocking boots with half a bloody Paris by the sound of things. And in 1824, he and a dressmaker named Marie-Laura Catherine Labay, they had a kid together also named Alexandre Dumas, who is our next distinguished man. But we're going to come back to him a bit later. He's our third, he's the third bloke in the lineup here of this story. But we'll come back to, you just remember, he's born in 1824 to out of wedlock, illegitimate child there to uh, to Alexandre the Elder and uh, Marie-Laure Catherine Labay there. So we'll come back to them. But for Alexandre the Elder, uh, he's still in Paris. He's romping about, writing whatever else. And uh, then in 1829, he actually had one of his plays produced for the first time ever. It was called Henri the Third and his courts, and people bloody loved it. Very popular it was. And then the next year, he dropped the hottest play of 1830. It was called Christina, and it made another pile of cash as people loved that one too. So he is rolling in it. He, this means he's able to, to drop the, the job as a notary, drop the, as a scribe. He's not doing that anymore. And he starts writing full-time. Brilliant. 1830 was also the year of the July Revolution, another smaller French revolution, which saw King Charles X exiled after riots and upbringings and guess who was made king instead? It was old mate Louis-Philippe, Alexandre's old boss. So Alexandre is having a great time. He's mates with the king, riots and whatever else are settling down, industrialization is underway, and people just wanting a bit of peace and quiet and something interesting to read. And so Alexandre, he moves away from plays and starts writing novels. They're published as serials and different uh, newspapers and magazines, and they're very popular indeed. He made fat stacks of cash with how popular these stories were. Make no mistake about that. He was rolling in money, but not for an enormously long amount of time. The money would roll in and then it would roll straight out because he was spending fat stacks of cash on a hugely luxurious lifestyle. This bloke loved to chuck money about, especially at all the women that he was with, uh, you know, cutting about with, uh, he had a different bird in his arm every week by the sound of things there. He's getting well and truly stuck in on that front. But still, he did a good job of keeping himself in the black, uh, you know, in, in terms of keeping his finances, at least in, you know, on the right side of the ledger there. And in 1838, he put together enough money to found a little production company. It was sort of like a little writer's warehouse almost, where he oversaw, he oversaw a team of writers who all spewed out stories under his supervision and, and his guidance. He had a ton of literary projects on the go at all time. He, he worked with a bunch of other writers and authors on all sorts of stuff. He wrote a big bumper compendium of famous criminals called Celebrated Crimes, and he wrote a novel called called The Fencing Master while working with his 
well, he's he's fencing master, Augustin Grizier, a, a good person with whom to write a book called The Fencing Master, really. You can't fault his choice of collaborator there. Uh, the book, by the way, was uh, was Grizier's account of the Decembrist revolt in Russia. And it was actually banned by Tsar Nicholas I, who banned as well Alexandra from visiting Russia altogether. He was banned from entering the country, and the ban wasn't lifted until the Tsar died in, uh, in 1855. Anyway. Alexandre, he worked with all sorts of people on all sorts of different projects, but unfortunately for his collaborators, he seemed to have had a fair few tickets on himself, this fella. He had a great big bloody ego, and he loved chatting about himself and being the centre of attention, and so it won't surprise you to learn that sometimes some of the people that he worked with didn't really get the credit they deserved. In fact, he ended up being taken to court by one of his long-term collaborators after Alexandre uh, published work that they'd done together under his own name. He was forced to pony up some cash, pay off this bloke, uh, you know, in order to recognise the work that he'd done, but the bloke never got an author's credit or a byline or anything. I, I, I suppose I should actually say his name, seeing as that's why he took Alexandre to, talk, to court in the first place to, you know, make sure history didn't forget him. His name was August Maquette. Maquette? I don't know. August with an E and then M-A-Q-U-E-T. Maquette. I don't know. Um, Maquette? Probably Maquette. You don't say the last letter in French. I don't know. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to all the French-speaking people listening to this. I'm so sorry. Um... Maquette, in any case, he had helped to write uh, Alexandre with he'd have to he'd helped Alexandre to write about eighteen different novels, including the Count of Monte Cristo and the Three Musketeers, and he would often come up with uh, a lot of the structure of the story, while uh, Alexandre would sort of flesh it out and add character and colour and all that sort of stuff there like that. So poor old Maquette there. I mean, despite courts ultimately ruling that uh, Dumas had to pay him, you know, a fair bit of money for his work, his name still wasn't added to any future publishings. And the court's ruling was a real kick in the pants for the bloke. Check this out. This is what they. This is what the the court said. The court said, "This is a quote: Dumas without Maquette would have been Dumas. What would Maquette have been without Dumas? I mean." What what a savaging. What a savaging this poor bloke had to put up with. You know, then again, he did do alright for himself. He wrote a bunch of his own stuff and he ended up being awarded the, the Legion d'honneur, so it's it's not that bad. He he died with a lot of money in his bank account, so he probably, you know, he, he probably he probably did alright for himself. Anyway. It says a lot about Alexandre that he wasn't keen to share the spotlight. As I said, he was he was known to have he have you know have his head firmly lodged up his own ass and and not just for warmth either. Look, don't get me wrong, he was by all accounts a lovely bloke, great fun to hang about with, generous as anything. But even you know, one of his good mates, a bloke called Watts Phillips, described him as the most delightfully amusing and egotistical creature on the face of the earth. And he also had to fight through some pretty awful discrimination and racism, as you might imagine. You know, as the grandson of a slave of African descent, one of his novels, Georges, uh, discusses some of the stuff that he went through. But his most famous legacy when it comes to race was this absolutely brilliant one-liner that he pulled out one time. Check this out. Some idiot bloke, right, was giving Alexandre a hard time about being mixed race. And this is what he says as a retort. This is what he says. My father was a mulatto. My grandfather was a Negro. And my great-grandfather, a monkey. You see, sir, my family starts where yours ends. Um, hello, police? Yes, I'd like to report a murder. Yes, that's him. This man here, the author. That's him, officer. I mean, the absolute savagery of it. Can't, oh, jeez, what, what a line. Anyway, Alexandre also got married in 1840 to an actress named Marguerite Josephine Ferrand, although she was better known uh, as a stage, by a stage name, Ida Ferrier. Uh, the marriage didn't seem to do much in terms of curtailing Alexandre's behaviour, however, especially his extracurricular activities. 
because uh, he's still cutting about rooting birds all over the place. No brakes on the on the Alexander got trained by the sound of things. He already had two illegitimate kids by the time he was married, and he had two more before he was he died. And and none of the none of these four kids with his actual wife. His Wikipedia page sums it up with very amusing brevity. This is what it says: <clears throat> Though married. In the tradition of Frenchmen of higher social class, Dumas had numerous affairs, allegedly as many as 40. So this bloke bloody loved his wine, women and song. He's having affairs all over the place with mistresses everywhere. And I'll tell you what, it's a bloody good thing that his literature was so popular because despite making millions and squillions of his work, he hardly ever had Hardly ever ever had any money at all. He just burnt holes in his pockets, and he'd spend it on people, and and not just the women he was seeing either. In 1846, he had a lavish mansion built outside Paris called the Chateau de Monte Cristo, and he had people, even strangers, just come and stay with him, kick about and hang out, you know, drink the bloody orange juice out his fridge, whatever else like that, all at his expense. No worries, mate. Make yourself at home. Whack a pie in the oven. You know, help yourself to a beer out there in the fridge. This bloke had. An enormous heart, big, big, huge head to go with it, but an enormous heart by the sound of things. But as a result of this, you won't be surprised to find out that he ran into some uh, some real financial problems before 1850. It was actually so bad that he had to sell the Chateau de Monte Cristo. And in 1851, he fled to Brussels. He did this for two reasons. Firstly, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, the nephew of Napoleon himself, had ousted Alexandre's old mate Louis-Philippe, the king. Um, and apparently, Louis Napoleon was not a fan of Dumas and his lavish ways. And secondly, and probably the more real, the, you know, the, the more important reason uh, when it comes to why he left and, and fled off to Belgium, he also owed a lot of money to a lot of people. So the move to Brussels was designed to perhaps evade the old debt collectors for a while there. Um, but he continued writing while he was in Brussels. He was, you know, he pulled out another ten or so books before he moved to Russia in eighteen fifty nine. He travelled extensively. When he went, you know, he travelled to Africa and Spain and all, all around. He, he went uh, to a lot of different places, including Russia, as I say, in eighteen fifty nine. Saint Nicholas had died in eighteen fifty five. You remember, so he's free to travel there now. And French was actually the second language of all the fancy pants nobles in Russia at this stage. And so he did very, very well for himself over there, traveled extensively, wrote some travel books as well as all the fiction, whatever else, and was uh, generally the talk of the town, people loving him. In 1861, he left Russia and went instead to the newly proclaimed Kingdom of Italy uh, to see what it was all about. Italy was in the process of being unified. It wasn't It wasn't its own country for a long time, Italy, with lots of different smaller kingdoms, whatever else there like that. Um, and Alexander was a keen supporter of unification. He even became mates with the famous Giuseppe Garibaldi, who you may have heard of, one of the fathers of modern Italy. Um, and uh, while he was working there, he set up a, a, a newspaper that was, uh, you know, broadly publishing uh, pro-unification. No, I mean, you call it propaganda if you want, fair enough, pro- messaging, whatever else they're like that. And was, you know, not I'm not going to say he was instrumental, but he was he was definitely a, a, a force for uh, the a catalyst for the uh, for the unification process there in Italy. But after a couple of years of, you know, helping this movement of uh, Italian reunification, he actually returned to his native France in 1864. However, his creditors had not forgotten about him, and as soon as he was back in France, they sent the debt collectors back around knocking on his door. Not to mention, of course, a rather large number of female admirers and companions, old and new alike, who were very used to this bloke shelling out great big gifts and, you know, parties and whatever else all over the place, and uh, this was a habit that it seemed that he could not break, even now when, you know, he was absolutely skint. So over the next five or six years, Alexander, he worked very hard to continue to write enough to pay his debts, but unfortunately, he didn't have very much success. 
The times were changing, his style of work was going out of fashion, and so, astonishingly, when you think about all the money that he earned and, and spent throughout his life, the enormous success he had as an author throughout his lifetime, it's astonishing to think that when he finally died in 1870, he like his father before him, hardly had any money to his name. His lavish spending habits caught up with him in the end, and despite living you know, most of his life in luxury and decadence, he died a pauper just like his old man. He was buried in Villas Cotterets, the place of his birth, although in 2002 his ashes were actually reinterred in the Pantheon in Paris alongside famous French people such as Voltaire, Victor Hugo, Louis Braille, and a bunch of other people as well. So that's the story of Alexandre Dumas, and we're going to go back now to 1824 and move on to the story of Alexandre Dumas the Younger. Alexandre, you usually know as uh, Alexandre Dumas fille, which means son. Um, as I said before, as I said before, he was born in 1824 on the 27th of July. He was the son of uh, Alexandre Dumas, who, when we're talking about these two, is referred to as, as the elder or père, the father. Um, uh, and a dressmaker named uh, Marie-Laure Catherine Labay. Uh, so these two, what, what I didn't say about these two, however, is that Alexander the Elder, he didn't acknowledge his son until 1831. Uh, and and uh, young, poor Alexander the Younger, he spent the first part of his childhood without a father. And even after Alexander the Elder legally recognised uh, his son here, things didn't get much better for the young boy because he and uh, Marie-Laure Catherine, they went to court for custody of their son, Alexander the Younger, and uh, Alexander the Elder ended up winning the battle for custody. And uh, as you might imagine, Alexander the Younger was not very happy about this at all. He, he was just a young boy, who, and this, he didn't know this, this bloke who was coming to collect him. Apparently, he hid under his bed when his father came to take him away and had to be dragged out by Alexander the Elder when you know when he came to take him away from his mother. So very, very sad, very tragic story there. And it gets worse because he was sent to a school by his you know, one of the best schools in the in the, in the city, apparently, by his newly cashed up father off again with all the rich kids there. Um, his dad is obviously flush with cash now in 1831 because of those plays I mentioned, the plays that, uh, that, that went gangbusters and, and made him a whole lot of money. But Alexander the Younger had a miserable time at school, miserable time, because all the other kids, they're bullying him mercilessly for his illegitimate birth, for his race, for all, you know, all these other terrible things that he's having to put up with there. So he had a miserable time as a young man. But it seems, however, that the father and son, they made up and they became a little closer as the years went on, however, because by the time Alexander the Younger had finished his education, he actually went to live with his old man in 1844. Again, this is when um, uh, Alexander the Elder is kicking goals with both feet, money's rolling in, he's building bloody mansions, having parties, having people around, he's having a great time. And so Alexander the, uh, the Younger actually seems to have picked up a fair few of his father's bad habits. By, just, by the age of just 24 years... Alexander the Younger was 50,000 francs in debt after diving headfirst into his father's decadent lifestyle. He's going out, he's partying, he's living the typical life of a Parisian bohemian. He's riding the coattails of his dad's fame and fortune. He's rubbing shoulders with the rich and the famous, cutting about with courtesans, all the rest of it, having a great time there. But while he's doing this, he's also getting getting involved in the business of writing, just just like his dad. While living this wild hedonistic lifestyle, he's also putting pen to paper and 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 starting to write books. And 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 one in particular, after he met a courtesan named Marie Duplessis, she became the basis for one of the characters in a romance novel that he wrote that was published in 1848 called La Dame aux Camélias, or the Lady of the Camélias. This novel was so 
so successful. It was very successful indeed, but that was nothing compared to what happened when Alexander the Younger adapted it into a play. In 1852, the stage version of the novel premiered and was a huge success. It overshadowed even the work of Alexander the Elder. It was so, so popular. Initially, Alexander the Younger hadn't even wanted to adapt the novel for the stage, but he needed the money, you know, (laughs) partying isn't cheap, and he needed a bit of extra cash, and so he'd done it, and I tell you what, he didn't need to worry about money after this play. This play went on to be adapted into an opera. Uh, even after, you know, selling out theatres in Paris for, for months on end, it went it went on to become the opera, which you may have heard of, Giuseppe Verdi, based La Traviata on this play. And since then, it's been adapted into film no fewer than 13 times. In English, it's known as Camille, the story Camille. Um, and it was part of the inspiration for the, for the Baz Luhrmann film Moulin Rouge. So it is fair to say that Alexander the Younger knocked it out of the park with this novel that he turned into a play. Even if he doesn't always get the credit that he deserves today, it was an instrumental work of fiction that, uh, again, went on to have a huge influence uh, in, in the coming years. Even, I mean, the, the most recent remake of it, I think, was in the 80s or even, even maybe perhaps even re- more recently than that. So the story is still kicking about even today. But back then, back then, his old man, of course, is off in Belgium and Russia and Italy, whatever else. While, while this is happening, after his father left the country, Alexander the Younger becomes one of the preeminent French dramatists. He writes over 25 plays and as well as a stack of novels, although towards the later stage of his career, he, he basically abandons novel writing to still write more plays because that was where his strengths lay. He, again, he was taken very seriously. He was very, very well respected. And it's here that we start to see some of the major differences between father and son when it came to their literary output. Alexandre the Elder, he wrote exciting novels of high adventure, whereas Alexandre the Younger wrote painful portraits of illegitimate children and, and, the, and the so-called fallen women. Many of, his, many of his works have an autobiographical nature to them, with you know very sympathetic portrayals of women who were abandoned by the fathers of their children, obviously. And um, it's lucky that he did include autobiographical elements in his work, because I'll tell you this, we don't know that much about him. Uh, out, you know, we don't know much that about this bloke's personal life outside of uh, of the work that he did. You know, we know that he was obviously, at least on some level, deeply embittered about his childhood, about the, the you know the, the bullies at school and the circumstances around his parents and all the rest of it there like that. But we don't know too much about you know after after his Bohemian years in Paris, he he seems to become very very sober, very serious, as well as intensely private in his will. He gave strict instructions never to publish his correspondence, and uh, and even while he was alive, even as even as one of the most celebrated playwrights in France, the details of his personal life were never particularly well known. And this is very interesting, I would say, when you compare him to his father and even his grandfather. His grandfather led cavalry charges alongside Napoleon, and his father spent inordinate amount of money on a lavish lifestyle to impress his many friends and lovers, whereas Alexander the Younger kept his private life private, even from the prying eyes of history, and didn't thrust himself into the spotlight as his father and grandfather had done, even though he was a public figure, as a, figure as, you know, as a celebrated artist, a, celebra- a celebrated uh, dramatist. His work also tended to have had very strong moral messages and deals with subjects that have greater ethical weight than his father's work. And occasionally it offers insight into the mind and the character of the bloke, but unfortunately there just aren't many interesting stories to share about him as a person. Because he didn't share them with the world. He did travel extensively. We know that. He both travelled with and without his dad. And, and we know that he got married twice. The first time was in Russia in 1864 when he married a woman named Nadezhda von Knoring, uh, with whom he had two kids, Janine and Marie-Alexandrine Henrietta, 
who we'll come back to later here because she's obviously very important as we continue this story. Uh, but when Nadezda died in 1895, he remarried, this time to Henriette Renier de la Briere. Um, but unfortunately, it was in that same year in 1895 that Alexandre the Younger died. He was just 68 years old, and, and, and that was when his life came to an end. He was buried in the Montmartre Cemetery, uh, where his grave can still be found today. It's about 100 metres away from the grave of Marie Duplessis, the basis for the character in, uh, in The Lady of the Camellia. So, you know, that play that sort of kicked off his entire career. So a nice little bit of sort of, you know, poetic dovetailing there with him being buried, not only in the same cemetery, but, you know, just a stone's throw away. I guess mm, uh, you'd have to have a pretty strong arm to throw a stone 100 metres, but you understand what I'm saying. You understand the, the thrust of the point I'm trying to make. It's, a, it's, you know, a very nice little dovetail there to, to have him laid to rest, uh, you know, near someone who was so instrumental in, uh, in, in you know, being part of his, his huge success there. Anyway, we've got one more Alexander to cover here, and this one isn't going to take uh, take very long at all. I mean, there weren't many details for Alexander the Younger, but trying to find anything out about this bloke, Alexander Lippmann, was absolutely bloody impossible. I mentioned before Marie Alexandrine Henrietta Dumas before he was she was the the daughter of Alexander the Younger, and she went on to marry a bloke named Maurice Lippmann. He was a Jewish fellow who had fought in the siege of Paris in uh, in eighteen seventy as an artilleryman, and he worked in munitions factories. and uh, he, he was a senior a senior bloke in some factories uh, later on in his life as well. And together they had two kids, one of whom was named after Marie Alexandrine Henrietta's father or grandfather, perhaps, or even perhaps his great-grandfather, because he was named Alexandre. So Alexandre Lippmann was born in Paris on the 11th of June, 1881. And uh, and he grew up to uh, become not only, in addition uh, to becoming a, a very, very skilled uh, fencer, which is obviously what the, the sport that he took to the Olympics, he's also a reasonably accomplished uh, genre painter. So he, he was a man of many talents, just like just like his forebears there but he was so skilled as a fencer right so skilled with the swords just again just like his antecedents there that he represented france at the olympics no fewer than three times in 1908 he won gold for france as part of the team epée and uh, silver as an uh, as an individual an individual epée event and in 1920 12 years later in antwerp he won another silver and a bronze and then in in 1924 in his native paris part of as part of the team uh, epée right event at the age of 42 he won another gold medal. So this bloke, I, I tell you what, all the way through to his 40, he's doing very, very well as a world-class fencer, best in the, one of the best in the world at least. Uh, he missed out on two Olympic Games, unfortunately. In 1912 in Stockholm, the French refused to take part in the fencing because they didn't like the rules of the competition. And that was apparently reason enough for them to not, not to attend. And then, of, uh, of course, in 1916, there was no Olympics. The First World War meant that the Olympics were cancelled, so there was no event for him to, uh, to, to take part in. But Alexander Lippmann, in the, uh, in, in the tradition of, uh, again, his, his great-grandfather there, you know, who I guess was, uh, you know, probably injuring more people with swords, you know, play, probably playing with a sword in, in a little bit more of a serious fashion. But still, the blood that coursed through the veins of Alexander Lippmann was was the same as the uh, you know as, as this revolutionary general, this war hero who was uh, you know slashing here, there, and everywhere against the Austrians and the Egyptians and the British and everything else with a sword there. And so Alexander Lippmann, very much living up to the uh, you know living up as one of these distinguished men as we've talked about, and he lived until 1960 when he died at the age of 78, and with him. 
I suppose it's fair to say that the extraordinary line of distinguished men of which he was a part has, has finally come to an end. Well, actually, you know, maybe not finally, at least for now, it has come to an end. From a revolutionary war hero to a celebrated author to a gifted playwright and now finally an Olympic gold medalist. I'll tell you what, old Mary Sasset Dumas back in Haiti, she began a family line that produced some truly remarkable people. And who knows? Who knows? Maybe the next scion of the Dumas family is still waiting for their time to burst into the limelight. In which case, I guess it should be a bit of a pain in the ass because then, then I'd have to bloody update this episode, wouldn't I? But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of four generations of the Dumas family. Quite astonishing to see the uh, you know to see the the these four men emerge from the same family tree in, in consecutive ge- uh, generations as well. It, it, it is quite an amazing. It was a very very entertaining thing to read about. So I hope you enjoyed the story as well. Righto. One last plug for the Patreon here. Again, halfhourshistory.net is the website for the show. Sorry, boring housekeeping stuff. Should have, should have mentioned that. Here it comes. Get ready. If you're the sort of person who switches off, goodbye. Thank you. But you are missing out on some pretty important announcements here. And this will be the last one that uh, tends to be a little bit long-winded at least. Let Next week we'll be back to normal. Uh, halfhourshistory.net is the website. You can find the link to the Patreon there. And the Patreon, I tell you what, it's going, up. It's, it's going gangbusters. Going absolutely gangbusters it is. And there's a good reason for that because right now it is your final, very last chance to get involved in the half Ass History merchandise giveaway. Every single paid-up member of the Patreon in November is going to receive free half Ass History merch. I'm going to send it out to you absolutely free of charge. You just need to make sure that you have put your address in the Patreon details, and you need to make sure you sign up and, and, and pay before the end of this month, October. So that means you've only got a couple of days. Make sure if you're thinking about it, if, you, if you're oscillating, if you're thinking a bit, wavering about it, it's time to get it done because you're going to get some free stuff in the mail. Um, if you uh, if you're listening to this later and you've missed out on the deadline, I'm very very sorry. But half our history merchandise should still be on sale, assuming I haven't you know gone bankrupt and had to sell all the t-shirts for pennies on the dollar. Um, the half our history merchandise shop should be up and about, and you should be able to uh, to buy this stuff directly off off that website there right now. Uh, and so I encourage you to do that because the t-shirts are pretty cool, and the notebooks I guess are also probably sold out by now because I. Didn't order, did not order enough of them. Have to get a second edition of them. I think we'll we'll see. Anyway, that is just about that. Thanks so much to all the people supporting the show, of course, on Patreon and and, and other, just by listening to it, just by listening to it, it's it's such a privilege to bring you some you know some silly nonsense every week on on Half Hour History. So thanks so much for sticking around, and please tell your friends, please tell your friends about the show and and, and try to spread the word. Uh, and if you've got suggestions, of course, the best way to get in touch with me with a, an idea for an episode, uh, just like Graham Keenan did. Uh, jump on the website, you'll find the contact form there and uh, and you can send it through to me. If I haven't replied to an email, just send me another one reminding me and I'll get around to it. I tend to be pretty forgetful and lazy, that sort of stuff. Not even forget, just lazy, just lazy. I'll get around to it. Just send me another email and I'll, I'll reply. Anyway, that is enough of that. Once again, leaving you with a very serious question posed on Reddit, very serious historical question here. We talked a little bit about, about Napoleon earlier on during the French Revolution and uh, Reddit historian Indomitus111 has an important question about Napoleon, the French, uh, the French general and, and later, you know, French emperor, indeed. Indomitus111 wants to know, was Napoleon's bone ever put back together? <laughs>